Yes. Hello and welcome to the Dwarfcast Book Club, the series in which we reread, discuss and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels bit by bit. And after completing the closing part of the trilogy, it's now time to start a different closing part to the same trilogy, as we begin Rub Grant's solo novel backwards, with the prologue and part one, Reverse Universe. I'm Semiz Nye, and joining me around the virtual coffee table are Spack Natanodge. Hello, and my Semi is also Nye. <laughs> and Nasnapet Einad. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Plus, there was a particularly lengthy and detailed discussion about this part amongst our loyal listeners slash readers, and we'll be reading out a small selection of those comments, but there's far too much to include in full, so we do recommend catching up over at www.genemy.tv. We also recommend you re-familiarise yourself with the novel before listening, and we'll do our best to avoid spoiling anything that happens later in the book. And if you've forgotten what happened last time, don't worry, because it's completely and utterly irrelevant. (laughs) Instead, this novel follows on from the end of Better Than Life, which we've already recapped in a previous podcast, so to avoid wasting too much of your time, we'll do it in the style of the episode that shares its name with this novel. After Lister's body is ejected into space, Rimmer informs Holly, who formulates a plan. The crew go and get the coffin back. An old man wakes up and has a heart attack. and set off to the Omnizone, heading to a particular planet in a universe where time runs backwards. Lister discovers a message from his crewmates saying they'll pick him up in 36 years. He heads home and finds Kachansky waiting for him. But that was ages ago. We'll get with the now. Shall we start with the cover? Yeah. Yeah. Although I've lost my discovery, so I can't remember what it looks like. Oh. <laughs> it... It's a load of big clocks. <laughs> big men's clocks. <laughs> and... Yeah, it's a bit like a cover that you would get if you had an on-staff artist at Penguin said, there's some books coming out, it's called Backwards, and it's also in space. <laughs> it's good, but it's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah, I'll do a Dali thing. Oh, yeah, okay. I can see, yeah, I remember it now. I find it interesting that the Red Dwarf logo was so prominent, more so than some of the previous books. Yeah, that's true. I say that, I haven't actually got the book in front of me. I've just... Because <laughs> I've got the Kindle version. I'm going off memory. What time plus space equals... Clocks. And the K in backwards is backwards, uh, which I guess means that when we actually say this title out loud, we should pronounce just the K backwards. That smacks as, like, the original idea being for the whole title to be backwards and publishing, marketing department saying, can we not have the whole title backwards <laughs> and just maybe do one letter. It's like, ah, oh, okay. I think that's going to be useful to us. I yeah, to do it backwards would have been a real draw cap. <laughs> yeah, so Dave says the Salvador Dali-esque melted clocks are a nice cover image, he thinks. Uh, it suggests weirdness involving time. Yes, that's, that it does. And uh, But also comedy and levity and the fact that the clock, all the clock faces are in reverse is a nice touch. 
as is the backwards K and backwards, which we've mentioned. Uh, the A's and W's might also be flipped. Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's like saying like anagrams and anagram of anagram. The A's moved about. That's, a bit, that's about half then. Yeah, that's about that's fair enough. That'd be quite funny if that was actually the case and no one fucking noticed. <laughs> that's a good compromise in this invented conflict between the cover artist and marketing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit more preamble, I guess, to cover before we get into the nitty-gritty. There's the thanks to and the special acknowledgement. The special acknowledgement being um, Doug. Yeah. Also, the by the same author, quite no mention of um, Lost Human. Like, it's, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, you'd think that they would... Yeah, by the same author, they would, they would kind of lump Grant Naylor together under that and... and you know, cross promote last human, but uh, with regards to the the special acknowledgement for Doug Stillian and 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 says it might just be me, but for the line for the bits of the book that were inspired by the TV shows we wrote together, I am indebted to him. Seems professional yet perfunctory, and about as dispassionate as a special acknowledgement <laughs> could be. Yeah, someone else mentions this, but also the, the term erstwhile partner is quite sad. <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah. you know. It's accurate. Yeah, but. it's been erstwhile for quite a while now. But at the time, it was new to consider them like split up rather than just taking a break. Yeah, that's true, actually. This might have been first actual <laughs> acknowledgement, like literally that, acknowledgement. <laughs> that was the special acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah, the special acknowledgement is that, yeah, we're not writing together anymore, ever. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from um, in a few years, we'll do, um, we'll finish off Body Snatcher, but that's it. <laughs> Nothing else. Nothing else. There's also a um, a story so far thing, but that actually comes after the prologue, yeah. which is interesting. It makes it, again, which you said before about um, Last Human, I think, actually, the way that it's formatted and set out like a film. It's like you've got the pre-titles of this prologue, yeah. um, and then the titles would happen, then you recap, and then you get into the proper thing. Yeah. So you, what you're saying is the Red Dwarf movie existed all along. It was right in front of our noses. <laughs> Maybe the Red Dwarf movie was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> that is literally true. <laughs> <laughs> that, that explains my adult life. <laughs> and yeah, the prologue itself is basically the events leading up to the opening scene of Dimension Jump. Expanded. It's like, what, what's going on in Rimmer's head? Oh. Other than, there's no mention here of him being tied upside down, <laughs> left for dead by his brothers. No, but yeah, it can be implied, you know, like the the, yeah. the abusive relationship between his brothers and him is, is very much... Yeah, um, gets in there. Yeah, gets in there. And in yeah. fact, he's trying to learn the piano because <laughs> he's tried everything else and he's yet to find his talent. So <laughs> his parents are like... I mean, he, must be, he must be a musical genius because he's shit at everything else. Yeah. And God, like this hits so hard. Like, like in a, in a surprising way, I think like when I originally read it, like when I was closer to Rimmer's age, it didn't really bother mm. me. But I think maybe there's something about my perspective now that I'm a parent of a young child, and like the thought of putting a kid through that sort of pressure is really awful to me. It's such a young age as well. He's only seven. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that sort of... This must be so common, maybe more common in the past, of just well-to-do families, like, desperately finding, you know, what is their kid's thing? Like, what is the thing that they mm. are exceptional at? And, like, not everyone is exceptional at anything. Like, some, some, some people aren't exceptional at any one thing and still perfectly happy. It's just... It's awful. Celebrating nearly 20 years of getting a meeting time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's obvious that, that Rimmer is fine. It's the parents that are psychopaths. Yeah, 
Like they're the ones that have damaged, not Rimmer, but in doing so, they've they've broken him by proxy. And it's chilling as well that like his his mother gets a lot of the flack here, but the fact that the only description of his dad was the worry about his reaction, and then his reaction being nothing, and that's all we hear about him is that he actually did nothing in response to this poor showing in in his end of year report. But like, what's unsaid there is chilling. Like, what, yeah. what's, what does he normally do? You know, what's he normally like? All we hear is that he did nothing. There's two ways you could read that. You can either read that as like Rimmer thinking that because the dad didn't care, he sees that as disapproval, or Rimmer is reading too much into it and actually the dad didn't. Just, you know, the fact that he didn't do anything doesn't mean that he was angry. It just means that he was. Yeah, this could be a different version of Rimmer's dad that doesn't put them on racks to make them grow. <laughs> well, maybe it's that he knows that um, he's Dungo's son, really, so he's not as bothered, not that bothered. <laughs> as he would be about John Frankenhauer. <laughs> also, he's probably he's probably got some suspicions about Howard's ability as well, but um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he just hides it a bit better. Yeah, yeah, he just hides it a bit better. It's difficult to talk too much about this without kind of going into mid-logs and epilogues. Yeah. But this is a part of this book that kind of always stands out in my in my mind as, like, the exceptional yeah. part of this book, really. <laughs> yeah, the, the structure that runs through yeah. it. Yeah. It reveals to us as Red War fans that, A, this is going to be Rimmer's story, mm-hmm. this book, and B, that hints at Ace. who else yeah. who else might be involved. <laughs> I, was, I was going to avoid spoilers, but there's no real point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Especially and, and, when and, I, I give the name of the next chapter at the end of this podcast. To all those listening to a Ganymede and Titan podcast about the book Backwards, who haven't watched Dimension Jump, please tell us <laughs> that you exist, because I'd be very interested. There's a couple of small points that I have about this, which make more sense to say them here, because then we can just move on from the prologue for now. This is all in present tense, despite it being set in the past, whereas the bulk of the book is uh, in past tense, despite it happening now. Which, if I was cleverer, I would um, identify some sort of literary literary play at work there, but it's just interesting. That is interesting. I have absolutely no ability to spot tense whatsoever. Like Anyone who's (laughs) written or read what I write will know that my tense is all over the place at all times. Um, You are hypertense. I'm very much... (laughs) A rimmer at writing, maybe it's just a stylistic thing, or just it just felt natural for. Like... Yeah, because it, yeah, it's all in young rimmer's head. Yeah, so I guess it makes sense to be present tense. You know that that kind of style of like um, you, you get it sometimes with flashbacks, but because flashbacks are literally it's implicit that they are past tense, they are something that already happened, but they're presented as it's like a, a hallucin not a hallucination, but just like you're suddenly back in that time. Yeah, and living through it is is kind of a common thing. So maybe that's where that comes from. And then the rest being in past tense is just a stylistic choice of that's how he writes prose. Yeah, which is like the vast majority of prose. Yeah. In your school, did you have an EGBDF mnemonic? Um, I think was mine was every good boy deserves favour or every good boy deserves food or something like that. Wow, fucking dark. Bad boys don't. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and all girls. <laughs> no, I I don't remember that. I don't. I, I remember barely like recorder lessons at primary school, and I don't think I don't think we probably were taught that. And I just probably wasn't paying attention. I was taught every good boy deserves football. <laughs> which is <laughs> what happens when you grow up in the West Midlands. And another thing uh, about this, which we kind of have to mention, is that it's something that was um, 
fitting with schoolboys at the time, and I can confirm this as I was 10 when this book came out, but the use of the word spazzes is a little bit jarring when you read it back now. <laughs> it's the 90s. Now, yeah. 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 It's like in the intervening years, that has rightly become unacceptable. Yeah. But yeah. at the time that the book was published, it didn't raise an eyebrow at all. No, even in like young ones and stuff, when you hear it in that, you, your brain kind of reels and just goes, whoa. That is, yeah. I think happened. if you were writing this book today, because you're doing it from Mimmer's perspective and like from a bullying school day sort of perspective like the, its inclusion yeah. even in today's context would probably be justified if it was done yeah right but yeah definitely definitely a nice thing that also the end of this prologue like the last line is every good boy deserves failure it's like that's gut-wrenching that's like, that's like him <laughs> saying to himself like you know i i think i've been a good boy but apparently all i deserve is failure it's like <laughs> oh man poor rimmer the prologue and the themes that it sets up that go throughout this book definitely leave us a lot more sympathetic for Rimmer than in any other version of Red Dwarf, certainly at this stage. Yeah, and I think this book is probably responsible for a lot of the perspective that fans have in general on the character probably comes from mm. this book. There's a little bit of it in the Grant Naylor books. It's picking up on themes from the episode Dimension Jump. Yeah. And from Better Than Life, when he talks about his dad, me squared, slowly but surely over the course of the six series that they'd been up to this point, you'd got that wider picture of Rimmer. But because the book really hones in on that, it's a much more substantial story. Definitely, yeah. I would say that we talked a lot about our memories failing with Last Human and not really remembering a lot that happens in it. I'm kind of similar with this as well, probably just because of the amount of time since I've read it, but but reading through it now is just it has actually reminded me how much has stayed in my head and I hadn't just necessarily associated certain bits and assumptions and things like that that I had with this book, but a lot of Rimmer's early trauma that I just I just know has received knowledge has yeah. come directly from here. One more thing about the prologue, at risk of this being like a five-hour podcast. <laughs> so there was a lot of discussion in the comments about ranking, this ranking thing, like, and whether anyone else had this experience at school. So I definitely didn't. No. Fuck, I didn't have this. Because <laughs> I would have been um, even more disillusioned with school. Apparently this is a thing, right? Apparently this is something that happened. They yeah. Do you have a ranking system in schools? I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. Apparently, there's who mentions an assembly where they read them out. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I I can't remember if that's included in the thing, but yeah, an assembly where they read out. Um, they read out the rankings of read every out student. The rankings, yeah, yeah. Like two hundred and fifty students. I was like, oh, fuck it. Like, first of all, where to fucking hammer it home? It's, it's <laughs> difficult to remember sometimes, kind of how fucked up school was, even in our childhoods like because when we were at school the I, I saw this term on twitter the other day geriatric millennials that's what we are now <laughs> speak for yourself geriatric millennials like us i'm a middle-aged millennial well okay yeah you're just just one year past um but we we you know let's say born in the early to mid 80s at school in the late 80s and 90s like caning wasn't far gone to be honest and maybe still like being wrapped around the knuckles with a ruler was probably still you know, a thing <laughs> at some schools. And and that kind of humiliation type of teaching was still still around in some of the older school teachers that I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember definitely yeah. being like publicly humiliated by teachers quite a lot. And just even things like like going back a bit further, like I had a friend whose dad left school without being able to write um because he was left handed and every time he tried to write with his left hand he had his knuckles smacked with a ruler because that was <laughs> that was demonic. <laughs> 
fucking bitch. Well, yeah, it is sinister. <laughs> so yeah, school, schools until I mean, quite recently have been like hives of fucked up shit. And I guess like Rimmer being in a public school probably exacerbates that as well. Yeah, public school certainly, from what I know of, well, from what I imagine, <laughs> in the most part. Yeah. I mean, look at the people that come out of it. Yeah. It's got to be fucking them up in some way. No offence to any listeners that may play to. I'm thinking more of senior politicians. Um, I was not ranked in school, but there were sets for things, so it yeah. was like bigger groups, like the advanced or intermediate or remedial. Or well, that has a more direct kind of purpose to it, doesn't it? To everyone yeah, get their best. To, so education. everyone learns that. Yeah, I did get caned, but not until I was in college. And <laughs> when I started getting caned every day. <laughs> and contrary to what everyone said, it was fucking brilliant. <laughs> And in those circumstances, Red Dwarf, the movie Yeno Yeno, was created. <laughs> right. Book. Well, Main that's got book. the tiny prologue out of the way. What else yeah. have we got? <laughs> Chapter 1 of 13. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you know what? We're joking, but this fucking zipped along when I was reading it. Yeah, yeah in general, throughout this part, the chapters themselves feel really short even if they're not actually when you look back and you realize you've done four or five pages but they feel short because of how snappy the prose is and how good the dialogue is but also unlike previous books some of the chapter endings feel kind of arbitrary and it's it's there for dramatic effect rather than (laughs) in other books it's like you know chapter one is in this time with this character in this setting and then chapter two will take you somewhere else with a different character here the action pretty much follows on and there's a few switches of perspective but it, you know the gang are pretty much all together for the majority of it mm. and so yeah it creates a different effect like it's far more of a, a page turner yeah it does it, it feels a bit like maybe rob went to a few courses and came out of it with a few literary tricks because we've got the, like mm. cliffhangers ending chapters almost to a fault at times which is like yeah. you know it, it benefits the book a lot in some ways and but it gets a bit constant and then um, some of the seeding of like future plot elements and things like that almost almost feels a tiny bit mechanical, but it all works. You know, it all kind of yeah um, keeps it compelling. Those cliffhangers are perhaps slightly over yeah. used in the end. It makes it feel a little bit like um, the Trial of a Time Lord. <laughs> oh come <laughs> on, a fourteen, <laughs> a fourteen part of Doctor Who episode. But it's a lot better than that. Yeah, no, nothing deserves that sort of criticism. <laughs> Also, it's the exact opposite of Last Human's big fucking chunks of chapter that go on for 10, 15 pages. Yeah, it's just such a a sharp snap back to the Grant Naylor style of prose from the first two novels. Yeah. Which is, you know, I applaud Last Human in some ways for trying something different and being relatively successful at, at times at what it was trying to do. Yeah. But it's safer but nicer to have... It back to the familiarity. And this is something uh, we're going to come back to all through this podcast, I think, is that kind of... We're trying to keep as many, like, direct comparisons with Last Human, like, down a little bit, just in case we accidentally talk about Last Human almost as much as backwards in this episode. Yeah. But it's almost a dichotomy between, like, what Last Human was doing and what Backwards is doing. And, like, both have their ups and downsides, and, and Backwards ends up being safer in a lot of ways, not so much heavy on the new ideas, but as a result, ends up producing something that's far more what you'd want to be reading from a Red Dwarf novel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's on safer ground, but it does everything well. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. And immediately we kick off the first chapter with a really funny bit of Rimmer dialogue, his conversation with a shop girl. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, oh, there, there is literally part one, chapter one, you've given us more Rimmer than we had in basically the whole of Last yeah. Human where he was barely there. And it's just so reassuring. And it's like, yes. You just yeah, plonk, we're, this, we're plonk this scene into the episode backwards without a single problem. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Conversation that takes place in reverse order. And it's a really smart thing to start us with. Like, this is the introduction to the backwards logic. It's something that we can easily follow and figure out what's happening. Like, almost before Rimmer figures it out, we realise, oh, she's responding to the question before he's asked it. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it eases us nicely into the mind-bending nature that's going to happen. And for now, the logic is holding up as well. The backwards logic is... Is holding yeah. up. This conversation happens in the correct order. <laughs> uh, things kind of make sense, and Rimmer is getting an idea of you know what the world is through the TV behind the counter. And interestingly, it's 1989, or actually 1990. It is so close to. Um, it's November 1989 is right. when the Berlin Wall came right, down. Okay, I couldn't remember whether that was 90 or 89. Yeah. And November 1989 is when the backwards episode aired. Ah. Uh... I think it's about five days difference. Wow. I actually Googled it earlier, so I will use facts rather than trying to remember. <laughs> so even sort of visually, it kind of sits in that same... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they started knocking down the Berlin Wall on the 9th of November and backwards aired on the 14th of November. Right. So this section of novel is set within five days of the episode. <laughs> Superb. The, the episode is set in 1993, so yeah. the episode itself was set slightly in the future, but if they'd gone to England instead of Niagara Falls, they could have tuned in and watched backwards. <laughs> then Back to Earth would have happened way earlier. <laughs> Dave actually says re- regarding this, is that interesting that a description of the reverse fall of the Berlin Wall has now replaced the bit about World War Two and Hitler retreating across Europe, which was mm. in the TV version. Both are funny, so I guess it's just a case of slightly more modern and updated reference, because... You know, this has been written in 95. Yeah. You know, the disillusion of the Soviet Union is still kind of an ongoing process in 95. It was, yeah, it was a massively, like, there was still war. There was still a lot oh, of... Oh, yeah. I mean, at that point, the the, the, the Eastern Europe was in... Yeah, in Bosnia and was, Serbia yeah. and all those lads. All those lads having a terrible time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was taking current affairs and very, very recent history... Mm. But yeah, the the time where we talked about all the warring nations of Eastern Europe came together, there was that was a current event that was being referenced. Yeah. I wonder how this went down in the um, Czech Republic translation. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty delighted about the dissolution of the um, <laughs> Soviet Union. So I imagine it. on on chapter one, Dave also says um, about the conversation with the the woman behind the counter. Um, it has the kind of satisfying clockwork mechanism you'd expect of a great Turoni sketch. And it immediately sets up the notion that this taken backwards is going to be more sophisticated and thought through in terms of logic than the TV version. Well, sometimes anyway. <laughs> um, and that's true. And the, the clockwork description is, is actually really nice. There's a lot of satisfying stuff that happens as a result of backwards logic, which we'll get into later, when, especially when Lister turns up, that I really, yeah. I really like about this depiction. And specifically, it reminds me of the mastermind sketch from the two Ronnies. Yes. Yeah. Complete this quote of Margaret Thatcher. Her heart may be in the right place, but her... Charlie's heart. (laughs) (laughs) 
We also set up a murder mystery in yeah, this yeah. chapter. There's been a murder. <laughs> this is the big strength of this the, this early early chapters for sure. The the murder mystery. It's like it's such a great conceit to hang the backwards logic on. Yeah, we know that there's a murder. Yeah. There's pictures of Lister and Cat. Are they the victims? Are they the perpetrators? Yeah. Well, we. We know they're not the victims. There's a really weird line, and I don't know if it's in this chapter, but it's they're talking about whether, like, oh, what if it's the cat? And he goes, no, no, if, if logic dictates if someone's going to kill him here, he'd arrived dead. And I just find that, like, that blows my mind a little bit. There's a bit of a strange thing oh. about how the world is for the people entering the backwards universe. And, like, obviously, yeah. it's something I never understood, even on the TV show, when all of a sudden... Lister has a black eye and broken ribs. It's like instant. Mm. The second they enter the world, it's like the world has a plan for them to do stuff in this world. Therefore, all this stuff is just just appears. When you're trying to think about it, it just hurts. That's the only difficulty for me. Like the, internally, the backwards world makes perfect sense in this version. It's just that it's that interface of when the two worlds collide. Yeah. How does that work? There's a sort of transformation takes place from the second they go through the wormhole or through the Omnizone, whichever it may be, or the time hole, rather, yeah. that as they go through it, their change, their status is changed to whatever it needs to be. Yeah. And that's the only way you can kind of make sense of it. I mean, this is a massive topic when we get to Starbug later on. Yeah. And we have a bit of a... like It was a big topic of conversation in the comments, so we've got a bit of a, a kind of a, an abridged version to kind of get through that and maybe hopefully try to make sense of what goes on with Starbug. But that... A concept of a kind of a transmogrification happening. Like it says a lot about how much the internal logic basically works in Rob's writing so far anyway, that the biggest problem is is the kind of the mechanical problem of how do things begin when you enter the backwards. Yeah, how do things get to that stage yeah. when you enter? Yeah. Yeah. So let's hit pause on that until we get to yeah, Starbug. Definitely. But for now, the other thing that, that is introduced in this chapter is the cat's speech being out of sync with everyone else. So everyone, like Rimmer and Crichton, have, have reprogrammed themselves to understand and speak backwards. Yeah. But Cat is speaking forwards to the reader. It's presented in reverse. Yes. Because otherwise... <laughs> it would be three of them in reverse and one of yeah. them forwards. And Lister can't understand him without focusing very hard because he's been so long away from speaking forwards. Yeah. Or even thinking forwards. What's interesting is that it could easily have just been written in reverse, but it isn't even that. It's written sort of phonetically in reverse. Phonetically. Like yeah. Rob has actually sat down, wrote the dialogue out, said it, reversed it, and then wrote down what he heard. Uh, he's probably, he probably <laughs> just downloaded an app and just like just did it that way. <laughs> he did what we did. Which yeah. We have a lot, a lot of fun with a reverse speaking <laughs> app. <laughs> Let's try some out and see and see how it sounds. So this is Cat's first line, <laughs> phonetically backwards, <laughs> reversed. No nihog si chmes hit tau im chet silp now musnak. I'm sorry, I'm English. I don't speak Bulgarian. Can someone please help me? What? Semchis going on? Yep, heard that. My God. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That was very Twin Peaks, though. Really fucking creepy. Someone got a pretty good tape recorder for Christmas in 1994 (laughs) or whatever, because he's clearly just been recording himself, playing it back and writing it phonetically. That's incredible. Yeah, Smeg was the problem. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try just the just the smeg, kmes, sem, semeg. You've got M and E the wrong way around somehow. Well, he has. It's not me. Fucking hell! 
I'll try. I'll try it. Swapped. Higgins. Smegger. 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 That's really good. Fair play to you, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> that's an unnecessary level of detail because he could just have reversed the letters. I would imagine that I might be the first person who's read this book to have even bothered to check. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's not like because with the episode, a lot of people will have, you know, once as soon as they figured out the technology of like recording the, <laughs> what said on the telly and reversing it, will have reversed the backwards speak, because I did it when I was about 11 yeah. or 12. <laughs> Hundreds of other people must have done. Yeah. But to do it for the book is un- <laughs> unnecessary. It's an extra detail. step, and yeah. So moving on, chapter two, which answers the question of where Lister is when he's supposed to be rendezvousing with everyone. He's in the back of a police van uh, being, well being reversed, transported to jail. <laughs> yeah. That's both solo novels that start with Lister in prison transport. Yeah. Clem says, it's quite a neat little coincidence that in both solo novels, the first time Lister appears is no. in custody <laughs> and being transported in a vehicle, <laughs> to which Warbadog replies. And I think this might be Warbadog's first en- um, entry into the book club community, I think. <laughs> if so, hello. Welcome, um, Warbadog. To which Wobbadog replies, um, I don't know what could have put that image in their minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Possibly, I don't know. And then series eight, it's all. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is where the, the satisfying bits start happening. Like, Lister's in a lot of pain. And mm. in this scene, he gets the throbbing in his ears fixed by being clouted by the policeman. And yeah. it, it does a good description of just... Because in the TV show, we're meant to believe that Rimmer and Crichton like the backwards logic of certain things being better in reverse. Mm. But this actually describes the actual tangible benefits of um, of a backwards-running universe is that the bad things that happen to you eventually stop happening to you and go yeah. away, which is one side of the coin, obviously, <laughs> you know, the, the opposite is also true. But it's nicely described here, and it's really satisfying seeing Lister go from being completely beaten up to eventually yeah. not being. Yeah. The thing about the policeman slamming the palm of his hand against the side of Lister's head, it's like the reason he did that, if you're going by the rules of the book, is that he spat his chewing gum onto the floor. Yeah. That's the reason why the yeah. policeman hit him. <laughs> it's just like he put his <laughs> chewing gum on the floor and stood on it, and the policeman went, fucking dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you dickhead. Oh, they don't need an excuse, do they? Hey, cab. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a nice because the the details there, but it's not explained, and it just again, it's like he's thought about the whole journey, then reversed it. It's not just being made up as you go along with each individual kind of moments being reversed, but it, the whole thing, you yeah, know, not being reversed. Like the, it, it's he's clearly plotted all of this, like this first part out, fairly meticulously. Yeah, linearly, what happens yeah. in you know improperly and then he's put it out on post-it notes and then just taken each post-it note taking the last one and then the second last one swap them around Rimmer does pretty much the same thing that the audience does or the reader does rather in this chapter where Crichton explains things to him and you know backwards stuff is happening and Rimmer kind of stops in his tracks a couple of times and sits there and figures it out (laughs) in his head it's like okay so yeah yeah and that's kind of what we're doing like you read a a, a section of action here and then you stop and you close your eyes and you go okay so yeah that happened in that direction okay yeah yeah is Rimmer acting as the audience proxy in many ways of like having to have things explained to him. And there's a lot of moments like that where you know 
it gets it, to the point where it, get, it gets a little bit fatiguing because you, you, you're having to stop yourself at times to kind of like, does that work? Yeah, yeah I guess so. Mm. But the pace of the of these chapters is so good that um, it, it, it it's not much of a problem really. And also the fact that when you think about it, at least on a surface level, things kind of feel correct anyway. So <laughs> you're not yeah. really thinking, hang on, this is bollocks. Yeah, it's satisfying usually, like nine times out of ten when you sit and work it out. It's satisfying because it does work. Yeah. So this is the um, chapter where we, we get a few kind of things set up. We learn about the window of escape that they have. And I think we also find out about Vimmer's reverse charging problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, so St- Stillian Iden Dizzy's, um says, I think Rob's writing here is both smart and also generic. I think this is kind of what I was talking about before. So if you were to read How to Write a Gripping Novel Guide, it would probably suggest introducing a threat, <laughs> which Rob did in the previous chapter and int- um, with the murder. Introducing a deadline, which is the uh, alignment of the planets. And it's another way of adding a jeopardy at the end of the chapter. I really like the window of the, the planet alignment. It's a, it's a little contrived, and we've never really heard of this as a thing before or since, but it's like, you can imagine it. Yeah, yeah. for someone who is not a astrophysicist, yeah. it sounds like the kind of thing that is probably right. Yeah. There's probably a thing where you have to wait, you know, because we know that planets move around and that they orbit. Yep. And the gravitational the influence and, and everything blah, blah, blah. else, yeah. And so, yeah, there probably is an optimum time where there's a clear path. Yeah, and let's remember that what they're attempting to do is not to just fly to the moon. They're, they're attempting to go back into an omnizone. <laughs> yeah. Um, a collection of black holes orbiting each other. And so, presumably, there, there is very specific things that have to happen there. Uh, I mean, remember, Holly had to do all sorts of calculations for them to get through. Mm. Um, it's kind of it's reduced in complexity in Last Human, people just floating in and out. But in the, in Better Than Life, then it, you know it was a it was a proper kind of mathematical <laughs> effort to to get in there, and so presumably they'd have to time things right. And I I, mm. I do I like we don't know the consequences of missing the window at this point. We just know that it's very important. Yeah, and I think it provides some of the best drama, even if it leads to an iffy part of the book. But that's. <laughs> Much we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rimmer's batteries. Yeah, the problem that they're going to be recharging instead of discharging. I, I enjoyed the thing of like Crichton didn't know exactly what would happen, but he concluded that it wouldn't be beneficial to Rimmer's well-being. <laughs> <laughs> However, I don't remember whether or not Rimmer's batteries become a problem later on. So they didn't by the end of this part. So I think you've missed. A, there's a throwaway line about. There's a way to discharge them. I saw that throwaway line that, like later on, he he plugs into a car cigarette lighter, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and that fixes it. But that was so throwaway that I thought, well, that can't be it yeah. because then that's not. Maybe that's kind of the kind of thing I'm at in mind when I think that the, the cliffhangers are slightly overused at times because if you introduce ones that can just get tossed off with a throwaway line. Yeah. At the time, at the end of this part, it feels like that's going to be really important, but in the end it's not. Yeah. It's just a bit of a shame. It is very odd. Maybe it was an idea that was possibly going to come into fruition later and then didn't, and then it was too much effort to unpick it from yeah. you know, from, from the previous chapters. Also, though, Vimmer's battery wouldn't over overcharge because everything else about this universe that we're told is that you know things can kind of comfortably exist in it because Rimmer's battery exploding um for having too much charge would only happen 
because that battery doesn't belong in this universe. But we've not seen any other evidence of things not belonging in the universe having a kind of a negative having a negative effect on them. Batteries mm. don't explode because they're fully charged and not plugged in, you know. Yeah, and also there's the whole thing that because they arrived safely, they can't be killed on the way. So I don't know what the jeopardy is for Rimmer really. Yeah, it's all, you could just turn him off, turn him off, or like you know discharge. Like there must be a way of discharging, you know, by charging him, <laughs> trying to charge him yeah. and then discharge him. So yeah, it's a weird one. It's a weird one, but it's it doesn't stick around very long. And then the other thing in this part is Crichton's cagoule. Which uh, I made notes on, but there's a comment from Dave, which sums it up really nicely. Uh, Crichton feels guilt over the theft of the cagoule, and it's a fairly subtle way of setting up that he hasn't fully got his head around how culpability in crime works on this backwards earth. Because obviously he's not stealing it. In this world, he's leaving it there for someone else to pick up later. I wonder if this idea may become more important later. Well... It's not quite Chekhov's cagoule, but it's close. (laughs) It maybe indicates that he's because like his misunderstanding of of how backwards the backward logic work could explain why he's like he's worrying over nothing about Rimmer's battery. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's like he's trying to he's trying <laughs> to get his, his head around it, but he is still essentially a sanitation droid that's trying to exist above his mm. station, and this is maybe showing that a little bit more. So then after this, they are reunited. Yay. Lister is unnicked, <laughs> and they start to. Here is where the sort of the predeterminism themes of the novel really kick in, and like, yeah, Lister having got used to living there for so long, he's more, you know, he's gone native, yeah. and he understands effect and cause, and he understands that it, because he knows that this is the outcome, he has to then affect that outcome. Um, it, like, it removes any element of choice so for example here they have to split up because it's only Lister and Cat that the police were over Yeah, which means that they can't have been with Rimmer and Crichton so they have to split up even though it, it, you know, it would be better in a forwards universe for them to stick together yeah exactly and the, the predeterminism thing is weird because like what what would happen if they just said fuck it and ignored all of these signs and, and all went mm. you know together and did run in the opposite direction. Like, is that physically impossible for them to do, or not? I guess so. I yeah. guess some they would be stopped from doing so somehow. So the debate, or like the decision-making process of like, we should go in that direction because I think we're being chased, mm. and we should split up for this reason, is almost not necessary because you could just you just let the flow of time deal with that. Just go on autopilot, <laughs> take your foot off the gas. That's the problem with predeterminism, in a nutshell. Anyway, to be honest. <laughs> And yeah, it would be like interesting to to see like how would the backwards universe correct these things? Like if you know if if they decided you know you know let's not let's beat this predeterminism, let's not split up in the same kind of way that in Cassandra the episodes they try and beat predeterminism, and there's you know when Lister decides not to kill Cassandra, he accidentally does it anyway. When Kachansky is trying to avoid sleeping with Rimmer. She, the you know it contrive that you know circumstances and fate contrive to get her in bed with him. So like, if they decided let's not split up, then something would have happened that forced them to split up. Yeah, um, final destination. Yeah, it, it, I was going to say it's exactly like final destination where the universe will find a way to make it happen regardless. Yeah, yeah. It's also in this section where 
Kachansky is removed from the narrative. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Neatly, yes. maybe? I think it's neat. Yeah, well, she gets she gets dispatched with a somehow. Yes. <laughs> is that, uh, somehow Kachansky belonged here in the way that Lister didn't. And so she forgets There's, him. Yeah, which which works in, you know, that's how a relationship would go in Backwards World. Yep. You know, when you meet someone, that's it. Uh, you never see them again. But there is no reason why Kachansky belongs there and Lister doesn't. No. You can headcanon it and say, yeah, Holly did something yeah. to make that happen. <laughs> but why would he? That's cruel. <laughs> it's harsh and Holly. Rob has been left with, I believe, what's known as the Jennifer problem. Yes. From well, Back, Back to the Future. Future. Yeah. In the Back to the Future 1, or just Back to the Future, as it was when they made it, <laughs> ends with Jennifer joining Doc and Marty in the car for the next adventure. And they weren't sure whether they were going to have a sequel or not. They never planned on a sequel. So when they did part two, they're like, oh shit, Jennifer's in the car. We don't want I do Jennifer love that. <laughs> the fact literally immediately dispatched within five minutes that film started yeah. and then not ever getting back to her until the end of part three, which I think is yeah. fucking hilarious. <laughs> she, just, she just faints and then no one mentions it again. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's happened off screen or off page here yeah. with Kachansky, she's been Jennifer'd off, which is you know it's fair enough. Like there's there's Rob isn't breaking any ground here. He's writing for the core cast. Probably echoes kind of the feelings of a lot of fans around this time of just like we don't really want Kachansky. <laughs> we would like more of just what we've had, which is you know is has its flaws as a perspective as well because like you know you kind of want things to evolve and change. But um, yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Again, it's safe ground, but it's ground that's done well, and it's not. Um, Doug has done the safe ground option as well in the entirety of the Dave era. Yeah, it's kind of like he's gone back to what makes Red Dwarf its best. What's the core of Red Dwarf? Yeah. It's these four characters together, just these four characters mm-hmm. as the main character. Yeah, with an optional Holly, uh, depending yeah. on availability. <laughs> Holly to taste. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's not a criticism of that approach at all because both the Dave era as a whole and this book as a whole do that formula really well and obviously I'm happy with that yeah Yeah. Quinn has a nice little comment here Timothy Spall's character says Lister should have got Kachansky and that it is a love fair across time space death and reality when that is sort of exactly (laughs) what happens in various forms in the TV show and the books I think that's that's quite a nice (laughs) nice observation because at that point, when it was written for the TV show, that hadn't happened in the books. <laughs> so yeah, apologies to West Midlanders everywhere, apart from Blues fans. Um, it's okay. Timothy Spall's in Brumface. <laughs> okay, he's he's not a real Brummy. He just plays Brummies. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> he's been typecast as something he's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so essentially, we go into a chase sequence here that runs across several chapters. Time, space, death, big... and reality. <laughs> one big ass chase happens and it starts and they go in enter this door and go through a dark dark corridor there's a subtle bit isn't over explained in the way that you know it could have been where Rimmer notices that when he's when he first enters this dark uh, corridor he can see quite well but the further he gets to the end his eyesight gets worse and yeah, yeah. in reverse what's happening is he's you know as you are when you go into a dark place, at first you're completely blind and then your eyes adjust and that happens in reverse. That's a really debilitating example of how backwards logic works. Yeah. Things can get unbad, but things can never get better. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like Bad things can go away, 
but that's not that's not the same as something getting better because for something to get better it needs some things need to progress and things need to be left in the past and so backwards logic is bullshit <laughs> and that's why D-Ream were never a success in this universe <laughs> this chase sequence then the geography of it is is difficult and I believe there was quite a bit of discussion about the geography <laughs> there, there was a bit of discussion and I've kind of ran with it a little bit but I'd kind of forgotten that they interfaced with a, a mountain before they got anywhere near a car so yeah. from what I can gather they are on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls I think so they're in Ontario the nearest mountain range is the Blue Mountains and they are 254 kilometers away so it's a hell of a long dark corridor they were walking through yeah <laughs> so I guess this is just maybe just necessary it's really difficult to tell because there might have been like there might be lesser mountains but the Blue Mountains are like the big big like when when they get into hillbilly country that's probably where mm. they are I think there are other patches of mountains around but I don't think that none of them are right next to Niagara Falls there's a picture of Niagara Falls so if you just google image search Niagara Falls there's like a nice kind of 360 pictures and it's pretty flat for a fair fair yeah. while <laughs> you're not going to just go for a brisk run and find a mountain to climb down so may- maybe this mountain is a bit more of a ridge or I'm not sure but later on it is definitely possible that they could be deep in some mountain range uh, later on because it's only what five hour drive away I think what this is is Rob has just created a version of yeah. Niagara Falls that yeah. works for the story that he wants to tell. Yeah. And it's kind of like... Rob has this thing with America in general, and it's across the Strangerers. Um, and I think in Incompetence as well, if I'm remembering correctly, where it's kind of this amalgamated version of yeah. glimpses of America that he got from 1950s B-movies of all kind yeah. of formed what America is in his mind. America and that's where specifically. Yeah, <laughs> that's where this is set. Yeah. It's, it's set in a world where Niagara Falls is next to some mountains where you find hillbillies and pig fuckers and all the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, do you know what? I've forgotten their names, but he, he name-checks a couple of friends that helped him. Yes, Kareem and Ruth Painter. So basically, you'd be like, you know, can, can I use mountains? Yeah, there's mountains close enough, I guess. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. what, what's the gift shop like? <laughs> um, yeah, we don't want to cast aspersions on Kareem or Ruth Painter. And I don't know whether it's Kareem Painter and Ruth Painter, or whether they're two separate people, or whether they're a couple. Just, that one of them deserves uh, the surname mentioned, and the other one yeah. didn't give quite as much information, so it doesn't. I guess, for me, when I was reading this... It, like it's kind of natural that the geography is going to be confusing at times yeah. because of the reverseness of it all but it it pieces itself together the more you read on yeah. i think and i think it works in that way because of the backwardsness the puzzle is pieced together by revealing what led to the thing that you've just seen happening yeah rather than showing the consequences of an action you're shown the consequences and then the action you're constantly being given this satisfying drip feed of information constant pullback and reveals yeah yeah you start with the final image and then bit by bit the workings are revealed yeah, yeah. it's masterful it's, it's like he thought like what are all the best things i can do with backers obviously it's got limitations i can only do it for a certain amount of time how can yeah. i make it a satisfying read and this kind of yeah this constant oh that's what's happening and then just they oh you know lister's bollocks don't hurt anymore that is a satisfying thing to read like things are getting better um mm. 
he's throwing all of that at the page, which is really effective. But God, yeah. I struggle with geography and books at the best of times, or like visualizing fights or anything like that. So mm. this is a bit of a struggle. <laughs> 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 I cannot get it out of my head, and I tried to with this reading of of. I can't imagine this this kind of climbing being anything other than a sheer ninety degree cliff face. That's you know what but it's clearly yeah. not that. It's it's a you're right though because it does mm. make it feel like as if in a sort of like a of a cartoon way where they're holding onto a tree branch, <laughs> exactly. like sort of you know found feet in the air. That's the yeah. It's it's the drop off the this edge in Jurassic Park. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It does feel like that, but then obviously he's tumbling down the mountain, which means that it must be on a slam. It's, yeah, it must you know, be like you know. More than forty-five degrees, but like, yeah, 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 a tricky, a tricky hill climb. Yeah, yeah it's a, uh, imagine going down into a quarry or something like that. Yeah, that sort of incline yeah. and that yeah. sort of yeah, that sort of scale maybe because we're mm. not in the mountains right now. We will be. Yeah, they must go really fucking far in that stolen pickup truck. Yeah, <laughs> which we'll get to. <laughs> but no, yeah, this is the bit where they're unclimbing up a mountain <laughs> slash unfalling down at various points. That's so good. And in backwards logic, in in the effect and cause of things, they're being chased up this mountain by a cop. Cat gets to the top first and uh, stops to have a shit. Yeah. Well, while, while Lister is still on the run. Well, Lister does a pretty good job to start with, then falls down half of it, manages to just about stop himself, and then battered and bruised keeps going up. So if I remember rightly, the way it works is that Lister has got a bit of an advantage on the cop and then he makes a mistake, which then brings him close to the cop and then he gets away from him again. It is the mistake that probably gets him caught as well, Yeah, if we think about it. Otherwise they might have got away, because there's just this one guy chasing him. But then at that point he's probably called in the reinforcements. In fact, he almost certainly would have called in reinforcements. We see him calling the reinforcements uh, as it, well, we don't see. After slash before this, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But yeah, so the cat having a ship... (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna have to mention this. Someone in the comments again said they, it was like it was confusing as to whether the cat did a piss or a shit in the in the TV episode. I was like, it's clearly the yeah, it's a always shit. a shit. Yeah, it's always a shit, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... basically, yeah, we have comments for chapter four. It's all about it's all about shit and buttocks. <laughs> <laughs> chapter four is only two pages, so it's mostly cat having a shit. <laughs> So Dave said, somehow cats reverse shittery. <laughs> this is a good, <laughs> very good. Isn't quite as funny without the performance, although this answers the eternal age-old question of whether cat was meant to be shitting or pissing at the end of the TV's version of Backwards. Nah. I do feel like man. there was... Yeah, man, shit. It was fucking shitting, man. <laughs> I have a memory. Like, we've been doing this fucking thing so long. At some point, we must have had this debate. Like, in a <laughs> in a commentary or something. It's like Because when, when I was very young... I didn't get really what had happened. So maybe I went from, you know, I, I can imagine I'm going from that moment of like, what the hell happened? I don't get it, to like, oh, maybe he was doing a wee. <laughs> and then like, oh, no, obviously I know what the most traumatic thing that could have happened there is. But <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't call it's it an attempt. I think this is one where I'm not going to um, encourage people to tweet Rob to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll just safely assume that it was a shit. Do you know what? By the end of this, we might have some questions that we would probably be a good idea to put to him because um, he is quite responsive, isn't he? And um, yeah. I'm sure he'd like to. Why don't we ask him about this? That Stillian and Nides points out. We're only a tenth of the way through the book, but we've already read about Rimmer's buttocks. Lister looking forward to a satisfying bell movement, and now the cat having a reverse toilet stop. Rob seems to have been particularly anally fixated at this time. 
Well, he will move on to penises um, pretty soon. <laughs> there is. I, I really empathise with Lister when he said that he hadn't had a satisfying bell movement yeah. for the best part of forty years. I was like, yeah, that is something to look forward to. Yeah, and this, like, <laughs> I mean, you can tell that Ian is a relatively new dad as well because the importance <laughs> of the shit break becomes oh, infinitely better <laughs> as soon as it, you know you're having. The break from from the real world, basically, it's like you're going into your own little dimension. Especially with our bathroom, when you turn the light on, the extractor fan comes on and it blocks out the noise from downstairs. <laughs> it's perfect. So yeah, why is Rob so obsessed with shitting? Honestly, <laughs> how old are Rob's kids at this point? <laughs> I think the timeline checks out. Dave has a philosophical question for us. Is it about shitting? Yes. <laughs> Did cat shit always exist there on backwards Earth because the universe knew that they would eventually arrive? Or did that shit pop into being as soon as Starbug arrived to account for the new anomaly? Without anyone in the book being there to observe the shit directly, it essentially occupied a dual quantum state of existence and (laughs) non-existence that was only confirmed when Starbug entered backwards Earth and forced it to conform to one of the two possibilities. It's Schrodinger's shit. (laughs) Um, or, as Unrumble points out, Schrodinger's catch it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like this is a genuine question because this is exactly the same question we should be asking about Starbuck and its <laughs> physical yeah. condition later on. But, but yeah, like and and a bit later on, we didn't copy everything because like this conversation went on for ages. But it's the problem <laughs> of I think it was Quinn that mentioned that if you took someone from backward a backwards universe, put them in a forward universe, everything would be fine because of cause and effect. From the moment they are in our universe, they participate in cause and effect, and yeah. that is fine. But because it's effect and cause, your impact on a universe should exist before you w- were yeah. in it. Yeah, time's mm-hmm. arrows the wrong way around. So yeah, you, yeah. So it's it's so as soon as Lister and Kachansky were put into this universe providing that they didn't already have existed in this universe anyway did a did a lifetime's worth of waste and like everything they th- ever throw out suddenly materialize on earth ready for them to unthrow out oh. mm. <laughs> i'm sorry daddy you only just woken up and i think it, <laughs> I, it or was it already there it was yeah. always there because, because they had always, always there. because that because that is the effect, and they're waiting for the cause, and the cause is them going yeah. through the omnizone. That seems to make more sense. If you flip the backwards universe round, what would happen is these events would happen, and then they would leave the backwards universe. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it makes sense that that stuff was just there, and part of the backwards logic is that the fact that yeah, they would just appear in this world, and then this stuff would then effect cause them basically. because everything is predetermined from their perspective it's totally fine it was always going to happen this, that they were going to enter this world yeah. yeah do you know so the concept of alternate di- dimensions and also backwards time running universes is um it's a pretty established scientific theory right yeah yeah no. it's not a load of sci-fi nonsense so presumably there's someone out there has has thought about the impact of someone from a forward universe traveling into a backwards universe and how how that affects causality and like yeah let's say the, the physical matter that your actions will cause or like the physical impacts of of you suddenly appear or will it always i think the real life version of this is to do with how it works in the tv version which is the big crunch is the thing that is now an accepted theory and so rather than it being a separate universe, it's Obviously. what is ultimately going to happen to our universe. Right, I see. So it, it would be 
a time traveller ah, rather than a dimension jumper. That we combined with the infinite universes theory, mm. then presumably any number of the infinite parallel universes could have their big big crunch. So if I travelled into an alternate universe, which is like this one, but it's going through its big crunch, I didn't originally exist in it. Like Time's already happened in there, and I never existed in that. And I travel over to it. That universe knows that you were going to do it. So, so, so that it means I have going no control over my. Um... It's the same thing about like when you, the idea of traveling into the past to change something. Like if you, it wouldn't have yeah. mattered that you you can't change anything because what would have happened is that you went back in time and changed something, and yeah. that thing would have always happened. Yeah. So that's the thing is it's you know it's it's the you don't create any paradoxes with it because essentially your actions were already part of that you system. Part of the they're part of that. But, that, but then that, that suggests that you don't have control over your actions, or at least some of them. You, you don't have control over what you do, and it's preordained. Mm. And, and, and that feels to me like that would be something that would be widely discredited as a theory, because that, mm. doesn't, that doesn't make it. But there's a possibility that in the show notes there will be a link to a study, because I feel like someone must have done this study or this thought experiment, and at least written a couple of pages on it. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see if any any anyone who's actually a science person has done this. Yeah, there was, there was talk about what would happen if a black hole ate another black hole, and it would be like apparently time could run backwards theoretically within that. Like, wow. The way okay. That if they were yeah. both spinning in the opposite directions or something. Something like that. Like, really, yeah. <laughs> but for the purposes of this book, we can pretty safely headcanon that this backwards world always had Starbucks engines buried or what you know they, they eventually yeah. decayed or whatever it already had all of Cat and Lister's waste <laughs> um, yeah. all of these things already existed because they were waiting for the people who uncreated them yeah. to yeah. turn up waiting for plops waiting for plops waiting for Todd <laughs> that was the better one <laughs> A human, Todd. <laughs> that was quite a heavy discussion to follow on from the cat having a shit. <laughs> well, that's Red Dwarf. <laughs> Something else that occurred to me during this bit, this chapter ends with Lister was about to find out whether he'd actually committed the crime for which he'd been in prison for the last eight years. Mm. Getting eight years for murder is not bad. What does he get? Sixteen, and he serves eight. Yeah, that's what makes me think that they're in Canada. Yeah, because if they if he it wasn't, he probably would have been put to death. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure what the state laws of what's the state that the U.S. state of um, Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is New York. Is it? I think so. Yeah, it is. Yeah, New, yeah, it borders yeah. New York and Ontario. Yeah, New York goes goes well. It goes yeah. as far up as you can go. Um, yeah, New York it doesn't sound like it because everyone thinks when they think of New York, they think of New York City, not the yeah. like, out the outer stage. Yeah. All right, you wouldn't you wouldn't have got the death penalty in New York anyway, so never mind. Um, but still, it feels a little less. Canada are definitely more lenient than the US. Yeah, presumably would have looked this up, but like he could have pleaded self defence, so it could have been second degree mm. or something along those lines, and then that feels a little bit more realistic, like eight years. There's like circumstantial evidence as well because they hadn't. There's no. There's all. Oh, there's only sort of eyewitness accounts, which is that, like, mm-hmm. someone was killed, someone was seen running away from the crime, and yeah. therefore that is literally all it is. But without any actual yeah. 
physical evidence yeah. connecting yeah, them. They wouldn't yeah. have been able to get any DNA evidence. Exactly. So the sentence is quite lenient, but actually he should never have been convicted in the first place. There, there <laughs> yeah. is no there's no proper evidence to link him to the crime. It's all circumstantial and yeah. that is established later if on. If anything, it'd have been but, weird because they'd have found like sort of I don't know, like material relating to technology that doesn't exist yet on the axe and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, some swept that under the carpet. Yeah. Mm. So now, basically, this same sequence continues. I think that the chapters themselves are pretty arbitrary from this point on. Everything kind of happens together, so it's just power through what happens and then pick up any points, uh, any comments that apply to each section. So there they go and steal the pickup truck. Dave mentioned something in the comments that also occurred to me. Um, the police are in poo-pooing... <laughs> Uh, which is like the reverse of whoop whooping. Dave said, "Can't help to recall Blackadder." <laughs> it's yeah. a good job Crichton didn't poo poo the poo poo. <laughs> Fatal error. <laughs> Before you know it, the entire unit was disbanded by poo 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 poo. That's the sound of the echilop. That's the best thing anyone's ever said, said. in this podcast. <laughs> um, so Stilly and I dies before we kind of get into the the big, or the you know into the chase thing. He makes a point that I was thinking about as well. Is that by this point, I feel the descriptions of the universe, e.g., humans exhaling oxygen, are starting to feel a little excessive, especially as the whole concept within Dwarf is already several years old by this point. I love the episode for all its imperfections, but you can only hear variations on the same idea for so long before they start to wear thin. And I would agree with that. And I would also say that the <laughs> when Crichton's mulling over the chopping down of trees or p- planting of plants, and he says, well, of course, in this universe, they eat the oxygen and produce carbon dioxide, which humans need to live, is the exact same logic as our universe. It's just with oxygen and carbon dioxide reversed. It's not, yeah. it's not yeah. a logical leap to say, of course, plants are good in this universe because they give the things... <laughs> you know, it's a straight swap of things from carbon dioxide to oxygen. Just swapping those two things doesn't actually change the logic. Doesn't change it. Fuck's sake, Rob. While the chase is happening, uh, Crichton running at 42, specifically 42 miles an hour backwards down the, <laughs> the mountain track is one of those other things that will, whenever I thought of this book, I thought of this. This is this is deep. You in can my totally head. picture how yeah. Robert would do it. Exactly. You can, you can picture David Ross. I could picture David Ross's quite in doing this as well. And funnily enough, I do kind of flip flop a bit. Only every now and then do I think like this Crichton feels like a, a more Rossian version of himself. But only every now and then. I guess because for the sections that are based on backwards, Robert was that was early Robert, which yeah. was sort of halfway between proper Robert and well, and the David Ross version. Yeah. We'll get more into it later, but like Crichton is very un Robert Crichton in the in his inability to grasp the logic of this. And like we've mentioned it before, but he he almost feels a bit more like the old the Bogbot that is way above his station. Mm. And that Crichton for most of Robert's tenure, he wasn't that Crichton. But that's that's the entirety of David Ross's version. Is is, yeah. is the is the, you know, knowing his station, knowing his place, and not wanting, and not going above that. He's very nervous as well. Mm. This Crichton, he's very scared yeah. a lot of the time, yeah. and yeah, irrational and impulsive as well, as we'll see later yeah, on. Very, and, very much so. Yeah. He is the same Crichton that just immediately switched himself off when he realised the crew of the Nova 5 were dead. Yeah. You could draw a direct line between that Crichton and this Crichton, and that Crichton was very much David Ross. <laughs> yeah. 
So that no, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that too much. But yeah, the novel version of Crichton is very consistent, despite the fact that in the gap between series three and six, the character just came on leaps and bounds. Yeah, it's not had that huge leap here. It's more of a direct continuation from yeah. the Better Than Life version. Yeah, it's more our perception of him, just you know, informed by the TV show. Yeah. So this is the bit where they they nick the pickup truck and. <laughs> get shot at or unshot at by a big fucking hillbilly who <laughs> as a dead pig uh, no no <laughs> as a giant pig no, as his wife so that would be that would be sick <laughs> yeah, sorry. Pig. i didn't mean i didn't mean to uh... it does very much remind me of um hillary briss in in league of gentlemen oh yeah in the last Cow episode of series two <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's basically it's deliverance isn't it yeah it's that yeah it's that sort of like nth degree inbred the hills have eyes kind of thing it's funny you <laughs> should say that because pete path three says the hillbillies seem straight out of deliverance there you go um, there you i go. think we can now guess which author was responsible for the flock of sheep in the brothel in infinity <laughs> <laughs> and um, all the bit roasting of giraffes that went on in the first oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, yeah. largely absent from last year <laughs> notable by their absence yeah i i like the um the, the whole chase sequence is is really really good because you've got Rimmer like just being maximum Rimmer basically of yeah. being incredulous about everything, refusing to think and understand things and instead is just irritated and annoyed and cross about it. Yeah. And having a go at Lister. Lister going with the flow and, you know, trying to keep everyone as calm and as safe as possible, but kind of also being a bit chaotic. And then suddenly you notice there's glass everywhere, you notice the windows and it is that satisfying logical progression of the backwards logic as well all kind of in one scene it's just so yeah. good i kind of like the realism of it as well like the whole thing of like if you were driving a car and someone just blew a window out the first thing you would do is to get rid of all the glass around you like mm. so you would literally pick up fucking shards of really glass away from his crotch and throw yeah. it out the window it's like you know yeah or squares yeah. of glass I guess, if you know. <laughs> yeah rimmer notices the glass and immediately both you, the reader, and he, the character, is like, oh, I wonder what happens to cause this glass. <laughs> oh, shit, we're oh, wait a minute. It's, it's the fact that Lister... Control. What's weird, though, is Lister seems to know what's going to happen. I don't know whether that's... He's intuiting, he, I think. Yeah, I think just because he sees the bullet hole and everyone's yeah. like, well, what's going to happen? He's, he goes, well, we're going to get shot at. In order to mm. get by, he's he's had to, or presumably had to have developed some pretty good observational skills because he doesn't have, it's mentioned before, he doesn't have the same backwards memory that everyone else does in the universe. He doesn't know what's going to happen, so he has to intuit it in order to actually get by. So he would have immediately gone into the pickup truck and said, there's glass everywhere, there's holes, okay, we're driving towards a a firefight and then whatever. But he's got Mm. this devil-may-care attitude because he knows that he can't die, it's impossible for him to die. Yeah, yeah. That's, it gives him a sort of level of safety that like, he yeah. can. No one else can kind of get their head around it, but like the fact that he can drive yeah. backwards and it won't matter because they haven't crashed. Therefore, it can't. You know what yeah. I mean? One of the reasons why, like, it doesn't bother me that Rimmer is so stubborn about not understanding backwards logic, and even Crichton is struggling to get his head around it. Is that it's the definition of going against your programming, isn't it? Like you put us in a backwards universe, we, we wouldn't get a grasp of it in. A couple of hours. We wouldn't get a grasp no, of it in a couple there, of years. There's still parts of it. You're just thinking, yeah. you know, there's some level. Like we, you'd still kind of think, or oh, must I must be able to have some sort of influence on this universe? And yet, everything yeah. bears out that you don't. But I'm a human. Didn't. I should. I, I have. I, I should have influence on my will. surroundings. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
And especially when it comes to instinctive primal reactions, like Rimmer is in fear of his life. So his natural instincts are going to override the logic of, oh, no, we're safe. Like, he would yeah. definitely get scared at, you know, having a shotgun pointed at him. Yeah. It, he doesn't he doesn't have time to make the computation. Oh, actually, because I haven't been shot, <laughs> I'm actually all right. And also, I'm a hologram anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, yeah he doesn't uh, think logically him. about that anyway. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, but that is Rimmer. Like, specifically, anyone would have the same reaction, but especially Rimmer, because he's an inveterate coward. Here's the thing, though. It's River Softlight here, right? He is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's that's a big. That's a big. Is that that's a big change considering this one in Last Human River, right? Or is River Softlight? Now then, when did he become Hardlight? You. Um. Only in off-screen in Last Human, basically. Right. Okay. So it's not. Um, a so uh, as, yeah, as of the end of Better Than Life, is Softlight. Yeah. We know that he's Softlight because there's an interesting bit where they go through some. Then they, when they exit the pickup truck and run through the bushes. Uh, Rimmer's feet disappear in the undergrowth, like the implication being that he's just like he's gone straight through it, which is yeah, yeah. not how hologram projection works. His light beam is aligning him to the to, yeah. to, to the actual. He's got lo- he's got low render distance, basically. <laughs> it's like how people used to see like Roman ghosts, yeah. <laughs> because that's where the flaw was when they were alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting as well. I, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but when he starts panicking about you know the mountains and the woods and um, where they're he- heading off, he actually has a very specific fear about how he could die, which is creatures devouring his light bee of just like finding him and mm. eating his light bee, which would obviously yeah. kill him. So he's, he he does have a kind of a rational. That's where his rational fear of dying comes from: is that he could still his light bee could still be destroyed. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, a rad pistol or something. Because he's a natural coward, he's had to adapt his fear. Yeah, (laughs) he's had to (laughs) to be the most unlikely. Rather than being scared, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was wrong to say like he's a hologram. What's he scared about? Because if his light bee gets hit by a shotgun bullet, then yeah, that's going to be problematic. Yeah, it's just like the whole thing of like it's it hasn't happened, therefore it won't happen. So yeah, yeah. the hologram aspect isn't a reason not to be scared. The reverse logic is. So, they get back to Starbuck, (laughs) and there is lots of really good rumouring happening. (laughs) 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 Chapter 8 in particular, my notes are, this is such good rumouring, and there's a line where he says he decides who should bear the brunt of his reproachful look. <laughs> like he's decided someone's going to get a bollocking. He's just trying to figure out who. Yeah, and his, um, it, um, his relief at the blame not being on hit. Oh, no, yeah. sorry, that's later on, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's a bit later on, but that's that's yeah. also some prime rumour. Uh, they've just been so happy that blame had been apportioned and none of it had landed on him. Yes. <laughs> and in this, the other thing in this bit is... Uh, he has a grin that he reserves for idiots and foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> Again, maybe reads a little different post-Brexit, but <laughs> from someone from Rimmer's sort of slightly privileged upper-middle-class background, yeah. that's definitely accurate. You can imagine Chris Barry's face doing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In fact, specifically, the face from Time Slides, of like the way you always smile when you're being insulted, oh, that yeah. would be the smile. <laughs> Or like um, uh, the smile after he says Crichton. <laughs> <laughs> so we're back on Starbug. So we might as well talk about all this difficult, <laughs> complicated stuff. What happens to the landing jets? Because the the characters basically have f- forgotten the logic 
they go back to Starbug and find that the landing jets aren't there. Yeah. All they have to do is wait for them to be returned. Yeah. If they go, if they go out and find them and put them back, then that means that it's them that's stolen them in the first place. Yeah, which mm. doesn't make any sense. Uh, which they've forgotten. Uh, in the comments, Dave says it's this chapter where the backwards logic starts to get a bit confusing for him. Some of Starbuck's processes, such as doors opening after Crichton instructs them to, seem to follow forwards universe logic, but mostly the action is still reverse logic, so which is it? If Starbug is subject to reverse logic, as it seems to be in some respects, why don't its doors open before Crichton presses the button? So there could be an instance where, like, if you're interacting with people that are in this universe, you have to follow this logic, but because they're all on their own, they can still do forwardy things. Mm. But no, that doesn't I guess, make any sense. Well, Starbug is from Forward's universe, the crew are from Forward's universe. When they're interacting with each other, they can use Forward's logic when either of them interact with anything that's from yeah. the backwards universe. So Starbug can be affected by external forces, yeah. um, which is, you know, what happens to the landing jets and you know, that's how Starbug has become fucked because it got fucked by things from the backwards universe. Yeah, yeah true. Um and presumably arrived in this fucked state. Yes. But they didn't notice. But they didn't notice. So I just wonder whether it just I don't know, because it's like Spoilers, they missed the window, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, in... So what was always going to happen is that at some point, they arrived in the Backwards universe when Lister and Kat were 10, was it, 14 years away? 14, 15. So, Spoilers. what happened is, basically, they then crashed Starbug, and then the landing jets were in the floor for 14 years. And then... Oh, that doesn't work. I have a bit at the bottom here that says brief yeah. summary of the Starbuck problem. <laughs> so the, this was <laughs> by far like one, one of the biggest kind of topics of conversation in the comments. Uh, Quinn starts, uh, summarizes it like this. So at the end of uh, chapter seven, they get back to Starbuck, but it's Starbuck that is in a state as if it has been discovered by a farmer 10 years ago, uh, which yeah. is fine. Starbuck crash lands 10 years previously. Parts of the thrusters are ripped off, etc. They mm-hmm. hide it in a cave, and then the farmer finds it, steals some parts, and uses them for ten years. And then what? At the, uh, the end point of Chapter 7, our four crew get chased by police, and if a lister to ultimately get arrested, uh, presumably Cat isn't arrested, neither of him are Crichton, then they take a tour of Niagara Falls, hang out in the gift shop, return to Starbug, and leave. Yet surely Starbug wouldn't be in a state to take off if, if currently, only a few hours previously, is in a state of dismantlement. Which... Sounds like a fair point to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the bit that that's the bit my brain does not is, so is that bit. Apologies for this. This being a bit of a long. This is longer than the comments we normally read out. But Dave describes it like this, and this was the comment that kind of solidified things in my head as much as possible. Anyway, the bits that are missing are the landing jets, where which in backwards Earth is what they need to take off. The book explains earlier that when they arrived and landed on the planet, they had to use takeoff procedures, which used different rockets. There doesn't seem to be any suggestion that Starbug isn't spaceworthy. In fact, there's a section where the hull has been repaired and welded over, uh, just that it doesn't have its landing jets. I think their supposition is that the hillbilly stolen from Starbug is meant to be a red herring. They eventually discover that the hillbilly had one of them and another is buried. We find out the full reasons later. Uh, But from a backwards universe perspective, they've been there for a long time. The big confusing question is at what point 
From the forwards' perspective of Kriot and Cat and Rimmer, those London jets disappeared from Starbuck and ended up variously buried in the ground and propping up the hillbilly shelf. This doesn't quite explain things as I uh, remembered from when I read it. <laughs> um, so for me, the landing jets are the things on the bottom of Starbug that push down and, and raise the, the, the yeah, ship Yeah, they right? give you a smooth landing. Yeah. But the bits they're trying to find in my head are the big fucking thrusters on the on the top. Yeah. Is that right? Is that what... Am I getting so, that right? Or have, I, have I misunderstood that completely? So, uh, I think, yeah, what... <laughs> The bits that are missing are the underneathy bits. Yeah. Right. Okay. But I think I think you're. I think it would. I always kind of picture it as the big thrustery bits as well, but it's not. It never says that it is. No, it doesn't. No. Yeah, that's just how we're picturing it, and I think the, that's where the bulk of the confusion yeah. Cat stems and, from. Because Cat and Lister are able to carry this thing. Yeah. So that means it's not. Fucking yeah, it's, it's not. It's, like it's, it would yeah, be. It's uh, not the, the idea is, is that. So to finish off Dave's comment, so this is the bit that kind of gives it a bit of explanation so for me it must be that they disappear from starbuck as soon as it crosses whatever constitutes the border of forwards time and reverse time no one notices at that point because they don't use them to land um as it's a backwards takeoff so they don't notice that the things they need to take off have gone and the first anyone seems to realize is late in chapter eight uh, when Crichton says, I'm afraid there was one minor problem, somehow the landing jets have become detached. So because they reversed the the logic, that means that if you run everything forwards, so Lister gets arrested, then they bob about um, um, Niagara Falls, end up going back to Starbuck and leaving, which is when they're, they're leaving using the landing jets mm-hmm. and yeah. not... No, <laughs> no, it's fine. It does. They're leaving does. using the taking off jets as they should, because they had to. They 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 took the decision to reverse their process when coming in. Yes, and that means so, at no point yes, did so they require the, the landing jets, which is what is stopping them getting off. Gotcha. The so yeah. the, the thrusters are still attached to Starbuck. They're the things mm-hmm. that are working. They're the things that allowed them to. They were leaving, so they were meant to be yeah. leaving at that point. So they were just taking off. Yeah, they had no reason yeah. to land anywhere. So yeah, that that does that actually does make a lot more sense. So they could conceivably have yeah at the border, which I like that that idea at the border between backwards and forwards yeah. world. Instantly, blip. There was a transmogrification. Starbugs landing jets disappeared because in but in now that they're in backwards universe, they're supposed to be buried yeah, here yeah. and being used by the hillbillies. Yeah. But no one noticed that because they weren't using the landing jets. They had yeah. no reason to check that the landing jets were still there because why wouldn't they be there? No. So they finished their takeoff procedure, which made them land yeah. and carried on assuming everything was fine. And it's only at this point that they've realized that the uh, landing jets aren't there. Yeah. Okay. And it's, and it, that kind of works for me. Yeah. So the opening, well. <clears throat> there's two things. So you have to accept this blipping happening at the borderline, which I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Which which does make sense. Do you know what I'd be curious borderline. about? When is it in this timeline the Starbug originally arrived? Oh well, I guess yeah. It's when it's with the it's when they eventually do. It's in ten escape. years time. Yeah, it's in ten years time. Or ten years ago. Okay. Yeah, I think that holds together. So it does, and so all of this effectively, the rest of what happens in this chapter is a 
big old red herring because none of it matters. They were always going to miss this window. Yes. There was no possible way that they could have made this window. That's exactly it. What happened was predetermined. They were always going to be trapped there for 10 years. Yeah, they just didn't understand that at the time because they can't see that. Not even Lister quite got his head around what was going on. Yeah, Lister is the one that could have gone, oh, hang on a minute, if the landing jets aren't here and they're rusted to fuck, then we're in big trouble. Yeah. Mm. But in fact, it does acknowledge that, that Lister had something in the back of his head that was telling him that. But he said, what was it? There was a really nice line that I made a note of. Uh, Hope was the fuel that fed Lister's engine. So Lister knows in the back of his head that things are fucked, but he can't allow... if, If he allowed himself to acknowledge that and think about it too much, then... He wouldn't function. He'd just shut down. He has to just cling on to the hope because of everything that Book Lister specifically has been through, yeah. which we talked about in, in Better Than Life. Mm. Like He goes through such an ordeal and it has to be the hope. There's always hope. something like he's hoping initially when he's trapped on Garbage World for 30 odd years, it's the hope that he's going to get rescued when he's... <laughs> dead and arrives in in backwards world it's the hope that he's going to get rescued and so he having gone through all this he can't allow himself to to lose that hope Mm -hmm. and it also shows his intelligence as well and that he's he's piecing all this together and here's a here's a a complementary kind of similarity between this book and last human and in last human you have um lister talking to rita's cabin and becoming Crichton and basically telling him things that he already knows but he had to have mm. a conversation uh, in this chapter we have Crichton's um list of things he doesn't want to think about that keeps yeah. getting mentioned and and a lot of them are to do with scorch marks on the wall uh rust uh you know and all the same clues Crichton is picking up and then you know we find out later that Lister has come to the exact same conclusions, and it's it's a nice even if subconsciously yeah. in Lister's case, I think it is. It just shows that you know intelligence-wise, he's as sharp as the other sharpest member of the crew. Um, yeah. So this forgetting of reverse logic comes at a really bad time for Crichton. Oh yeah. <laughs> he uh, rips the axe from a hillbilly's chest. And I think the audience are ahead of him, right? Yeah. Like the audience, the audience figure out like, no, Crichton, don't do that for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at the point where he had literal blood on his hands, is probably the moment like where the last person <laughs> caught up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the in Crichton's defence, he was it was self defence. Yeah. The killing because in backwards world, it's him, it's the hillbilly that's attacking him with the axe. Swinging at Crichton, he instinctively ducks out of the way, and he has to, he has to Do stop something, him. Yeah. yeah, I think the only person being like harsh on Crichton in the, this whole thing is him. Mm. But I don't think anyone in the audience or um, anyone, anyone really would say, "Oh, you shouldn't have done that," because yeah, again, self-defense. Yeah, in the backwards logic, it's self-defense. In the forwards logic, it's there's a man that's got an axe in his chest and, yeah, <laughs> so, and that's what he's thinking at the time is yeah, that I need to he help this man helping yeah. so that, yeah. that's how strong his program so okay this is interesting his, his programming to not hurt humans and to help them is so strong in forwards logic that it meant that he he was compelled he, to he, he would throw himself into a situation yeah without realising that what what it means is I mean obviously he has no choice he'd done it he couldn't mm. he couldn't make a decision not to pull it out and therefore not kill him but but that's the reason why his brain is not thinking. That's yeah. why Crichton killed the guy was because that's not the way around that Crichton's brain was working when it happened. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His programming is in forwards. Um, yes. 
And so, and, and the reason why he's not making the leaps and saying, wait a minute, I mean, backwards is because he's got all these overpowering kind of urges from his programming mm-hmm. that are in forwards mm-hmm. logic and he just can't do anything about it. And that. it's really clever. It's really good because it, it, it can make Crichton a murderer and yet completely seems like something Crichton would do. And it sounds weird to say that, but do you know what I mean? Do you know how yeah. you can tell that this was thought through very well, or better than the, the, the TV episode or the novel Better Than Life, is that this is the only backwards logic stuff in Red Dwarf that where more... Uh, analysis improves it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a few bits where at first you're like, "Is that is that the right thing?" Yeah. And then you go, "Oh no, it is. It is actually." Yeah. Right. I'm pretty like yeah. I, I was. I had. I have a few notes of just like, "Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about this." And all of those, I think, have pretty much been ticked, ticked off. The more you talk about it, it seems like the way that it's written as well seems like as if Crichton. It was because the hillbilly jumps at Crichton. The man lunges at the pickaxe, still raised over Crichton's head. And it seems like it's an accident, like it's the he fact falls that, into it. Yeah, like he falls into Crichton. So Crichton didn't fire the throw the pickaxe at him. Mm. It, I don't know. It says he, he jerked the pickaxe free. You know, which means that he yeah he yeah threw it into. I him. mean, yeah. if you play it backwards, it doesn't really make sense because in the if it was played forwards, he would have slammed the pickaxe into his chest and then pushed it a couple of times. Which I don't think. Yeah, he yeah I know done. you mean like he's yeah, like yeah. he's trying to actually. But again, but only, this only makes sense from Crown's perspective this way around. This yeah. only makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it would look weird to the person who'd been killed, but yeah. to Crown, it makes total sense what he's doing. Mm. Speaking of his programming as well, that's actually a bit later on. It's directly referenced that he has has been programmed with um, Asimov's laws. Um, that's a core part of his programming, which I found interesting because um, there's uh, the TV series Humans uh, now sadly no more. Uh, I worked on that; it was a really interesting show to work on, and Asimov's lore is a big part of that and how they since the program there. Yep. But also that it sets up like it's mentioned both to justify Crichton's actions to some extent, both in the murder and what happens next. But also as a bit of mention of an excuse to mention previous attempts of robots that didn't have Asimov's laws programmed in that went wrong, such as the Agonoids. Ooh, mm-hmm. the Agonoids, what, you say? What is an Agonoid? Chekhov's Agonoids. <laughs> Are those the things on the movie flyer? Yeah, Homo Yeah, because yeah, they mentioned Asimov's law in um, Siliconia. Yeah. Oh, since we're talking about the murder scene, Pete highlights a particular quote. Um, that I agree is, is excellent. It says, uh, after a few minutes, his sanity returned and Rimmer crept along after it. So <laughs> yes. this is because Rimmer legged it, basically, while the, the scuffle was ha- <laughs> happening and then came back. And that's just a very nice bit of prose again. Yeah. I think. It's around here that when Lister finds out what's happened with Crichton, that's when he realises yeah. that he's he was innocent all along. He finally found out. You know the one bit of information that he couldn't um, figure out before. And there's a couple of comments that touch on this. Pete says you have to wonder why Lister didn't recognise either of the hillbillies. Surely he'd have seen the victim's photo in the last few weeks in custody, yeah. and wouldn't the surviving one have turned up for the trial? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, they're hillbillies. They're inbred. <laughs> they look identical. Really, are they inbred? Because I don't think the text mentions that. <laughs> they're what I kind of like about like Lister as a character. He's he's not angry at Crichton either. Like, no, that's the thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, he could be furious with Crichton, but 
he can't be because he's got yeah. such a he's got such a relationship with that man. He's like he just he can't bring himself to be angry with. He Crane knows what the like, logic he gets, is. He, he understood why yeah. he did it. He knows exactly what happened from Crane's yeah. point of view. Quinn's comment on this: Lister has finally found out it wasn't him that committed the murder, which is great. However, one year after Lister's release, he meets Kachansky, and a year after that, she has his children. Presumably, at some point, his past would have come up in conversation, and presumably, she'd know he'd spent eight years in prison. What does he tell her? That he doesn't know who killed the man he was locked up for, and why does this perfectly bright, sensible woman immediately settle down and have kids with a guy that's only just got out of eight years in prison, of which he still has seven years on his sentence, so presumably is out on parole for a murder he can't remember if he committed or not? <laughs> yeah, because basically it's a love story across time, space, death, and reality. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. Something I didn't copy, and he did mention as well, is that actually thinking about it, you'd hope that he tried to explain to her what the situation is. That they're both from a, a different universe. Yeah. There. Although I imagine that would be quite difficult if she's so embedded. Well, that's the whole, yeah. Yeah. Lister and Kajanski's time together in Backwards World is an idea for Rob Grant's Butsky. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I like this book better than Last Human, but I like what Doug did with Kachansky better because I don't. I like the idea of Lister and Kachansky having a life together and they both understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Rather than this weird, like, kind of been very fulfilling existence that Lister had with her. Yeah, it it wouldn't have felt real. It wouldn't no. have felt like a proper yeah. relationship because it was all predetermined and he, he knew that eventually she'd disappear from his life. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so then they get back to Starbug, attempt to take off slash land with what they've got, but Crichton is at first just completely catatonic, yep. not helpful, and then disappears. And Rimmer is so harsh when it comes to Crichton. Because, like, naturally, once once Lister realises that Crichton's not there, he tries to abort the takeoff or traba the takeoff. <laughs> because, he's, you know, there's no way he's leaving without Crichton. Whereas Rimmer is just, no, we've got this window, this is our only opportunity, fuck him, <laughs> fuck him off. Yeah. Like, he knew, like, Crichton said to him, I'm going for a walk, I maybe some time. And Rimmer immediately knew what that meant and just let him yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got Scott's word that um, that's what was said <laughs> by Captain Oates. Oh, Captain Oates. So, Crichton's decision to leave himself behind, to leave, much like his decision to make himself human using the DNA machine in Last Human yeah. um, at just a crucial time, it's really irresponsible yeah, of him is, to yeah. do it. He's not thinking straight at all. He's broken. Yeah. Which he does, like, when he sees that Starbuck's in trouble, he kind of snaps out of it. And realizes what has been done because this is a line where it says, "If the crew don't survive this, then that's you know more notches to add to his murderer's belt," mm. which made me think of um, Markets of Britain by <laughs> Lee Tit. There he is with his murderer's belt. <laughs> Fourteen people he murdered. Fourteen. See show notes. <laughs> yeah, this is very good. Okay, amazing. But I did notice actually because obviously Crichton trying to fix. The fact mm. that Starbuck is spiraling out of control when you run it backwards, it's Crichton's fault they crashed. Or, well, mm. it potentially could have been, but I think as Crichton himself concludes in, uh, eventually, you know, the weight of Crichton versus the weight of Starbuck, it doesn't actually affect anything. I don't no, think. That's true, yeah. I don't think in the end it's it made any difference. Take. But yeah, it would have, like, if he had been successful and successfully, yeah, yanked it down, then. It would have been his fault. Yeah. Quinn says, "Isn't it bad programming to ha- uh, in AIs to have them want to commit suicide if they break their programming and murder someone?" It depends which way you look at it. Like, if you're thinking mm. about it from a corporate asset that costs a lot of money, then 
you wouldn't want them to completely ruin themselves if they went wrong. Yeah, but at the same time, if you had a machine that basically violated its core, yeah. you wouldn't want that thing walking you around. You want it dead immediately. <laughs> if, you, if you were Cyberdyne Industries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Miles Bennett Dyson might want to... You know, might, might have cut... <laughs> go back and put a line of code in just for uh, yeah, <laughs> Skynet just to fail safe option yeah <laughs> if hillbilly equals murdered with pickaxe <laughs> it's, it's what you call an edge case in programming <laughs> QA found a problem with the backward universes and didn't think to fix it have you tested this through the hillbilly murder um, um, unit tests no it, it, it'll be fine no we, we, we're never going to need that no, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, because of all this, they're now stuck there for ten years. Uh, Pete says the flip from for 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 to ten years is very clever, but boy, do I have some problems with this plot development. <laughs> yes, but we'll get to next those. time on Dwarfcasts. Um, well, not next time. <laughs> the next time, but one. <laughs> um, <laughs> this the the fair 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 ten years thing. Grand wheel. One of, yes, one of my yeah. favourite of all our jokes and show notes. <laughs> Mrs. Bear, 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 Fan Show. <laughs> so, yes, uh, we will come to all that, uh, the consequences of being stuck for 10 years in future dwarf casts. But for now, let's have a little bit of a pause and a sting of music and come back for some small points. So yes, no time like the present. Let's whap our small points on the table. Like John Barrowman. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm on AW, which is acronym watch, and we found one on page 49. Once we RV with Red Dwarf, one of us can jet back over and tow Starbug in. <laughs> so Doug is not the only one that uses I, <laughs> I assume RV's rendezvous. I get it. I've never noticed that as a shorthand. But it was, yeah, a, it was a virus that affected sci-fi writers in the 90s, apparently. <laughs> It made me realise that in Justice, um, somebody says, who started the RP? And I now I don't know who might have wrote that line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so everything's been thrown into confusion. <laughs> Maybe it was just a just a sci-fi thing. It's just like, make things just a bit, you know, a bit more... Sp- bit more sci-fi. Sci-fi space. A bit more future I'm not, I'm not saying this. The fact that Rob's wrote it means it's, it's okay. I'm not saying that. The sacred duty of Acronym Watch sees no... Authors, you know, we we try to find and strike down acronyms wherever we see them. <laughs> yeah, so did someone else mention uh, Clem? Also mentioned that as well. So oh, okay. Shout out to Clem. On the subject of which bits were written by who, etc. There's the the whole thing that Pete Part Three mentioned the interview that first appeared in the Independent with Doug where he talks about the writing process from when they were a, a, a double act. And quoting Doug, he says, it was weird, certainly at first, before it has always been the two of us. Rob would work the computer and I would pace about and make the coffee. So that would make sense of the fact that the prose in this book is so similar to yeah. the first two novels because it was Rob that was the one that was physically sat down at the computer typing yeah. or working the computer. As... <laughs> yeah, working the computer, I mentioned it said is just such a 90s thing. They've got computers. They've got computers. You don't know how to work this thing. <laughs> Conjures up images of like pistons being fired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hand yeah. pumps. Pedals. Because <laughs> um, even if Doug is like literally dictating to to Rob, 
there's always going to be a case of like you know he he'd like paraphrase or change yeah. phrasings on the fly because he's the one typing it so yeah yeah he'd be effectively the one copy editing everything as he goes, or, you yeah. know all the yeah as he goes all the thoughts that are put into the room wait a minute Doug didn't you what the fuck Starfleet I'm I'm changing that to space call oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's why the sum is greater than the <laughs> yeah. sum of its parts. To further go down the idea of comparisons between the two, which we don't want to do much, but we'll let a few comments in that kind of summarise it. International Debris, I was hoping to just be able to read this and enjoy it on its own, but it's pretty much impossible not to continually compare it to Last Human. Rob's got the characters down, attention to detail, type plotting and a lot of new gags. No classic jokes, but solidly amusing from start to finish. Last Human feels like a sketching comparison, a rough plan of a book that had yet to be written. Yeah. Which I can't disagree with much <laughs> yeah in my notes i said like specifically i was thinking about rimmer's line about how scottish people in pow films always go crazy <laughs> um <laughs> along with relief that blame had been apportioned and none of it was his there's already more good rimmer in this book than the whole of last human yeah uh, just from He's, the first part yeah, just you just you just mentioned the man. scottish man in the uh, pow count losing it i'm reminded of um uh, father ted with the the Scottish priest that loses it <laughs> in the laundry oh. department. There's no way out. They're going to send me some bloody kip. <laughs> There's a bit early on in Backwards World about newspapers and what happens to them and the logic um, of you know why they can't go and read about Lister's murder trial because the papers have since been pulped and and made into trees i said that pretty much verbatim in our last better than life podcast (laughs) thinking i was making an original point but subconsciously i must have just stolen it ripping off (laughs) word for word kepsi can i see your small point so lister thinks uh, when when they first get back to starbuck and he's having his moment of relief you know and, and and happiness he um he thinks of starbuck as his ticket home Mm. And um, makes you wonder what does he think home is <laughs> exactly? Yeah, because you know, obviously, Starbucks not getting him home to Earth. So you know, that's maybe something to keep an eye on there. <laughs> Lister's concept of home. There's a couple of bits and bobs that are recycled from the TV series, but changed slightly. And I noted that they do the joke when in Rome, do as the Snaymore, but they change Rome to Emore in the book. Yeah. Which makes it a better joke. Yeah, uh, it's easier to understand because it's written down. I think because in backwards in the TV episode, I wasn't sure what that joke was for no. ages. <laughs> when in Rome, do as the Snaymore do. I'd never heard the phrase "When in Rome, do as the Romans do." I think that was probably <laughs> the issue there, but I was the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. Is either have them? I think yeah, it's better to have them both backwards. Yeah, to yeah. reinforce the yeah. joke. Following on from that one, the whip it with a bum full of dynamite line, uh, when they're talking about Rimmer scarpering, they change it to a sphincter full of dynamite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just much more unnecessarily specific. <laughs> Where was it that Rob was um, described as the crunchy half of Grant Miller? In the... About the author. Oh, it is in this book. Is yeah, it? in yeah. this book. Rob Grant is the crunchy half of the duo who created Red Dwarf. Yeah, yeah. So the Doug crunchy the sphincter. Chewy part? <laughs> chewy? Like a toffee crisp, <laughs> like a dog chewing. Oh, you saying the, the toffee crisp is Grant Naylor? Yes, the toffee um, crisp is Grant Naylor. The toffee is Doug, and the crispy bit is 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 Rob. Right. Oh, they're like um, an armadillo, crunchy on the outside, <laughs> smooth on the inside. Armadillo. That's it. Show notes. I've got another one here. My last small point. 
This is maybe something that Crichton took a little bit too to heart in the coming years. When Rimmer is asking him how long until the next flight window opens, he says, all we need for the moment, Crichton, is your best guess. (laughs) Oh, okay. Best (laughs) guess. Origin story. Origin story for best guess. In... But yeah, I always associate best guess being a, a Doug thing or a Davey. Well, thing. no, exactly. Yeah, this is. Yeah. It's not though, is it? It's really <laughs> scattered throughout the the entire oeuvre. It's just a Doug. Doug abuses the shit out of best guess um, <laughs> yeah, somehow. So yeah, yeah. Although Rob uses somehow as well. Yes, um, he does. But once. Yeah. 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 One somehow. One acronym. Yeah. Kachansky gets somehow dived. One best guess. Somehow. Yeah. And so far as well, actually, the backwards... No, I say backwards. The back references to the TV show material has been kind of sparing. It's like it's like mm. scattered throughout, which I'm pretty sure doesn't continue. <laughs> there is yeah. there is definitely instances of big blocks, but it's um, it seems like at the moment he's trying to, um, to, to keep them as flavour rather than like lifting whole scenes, which is mm. nice. My... Final small point is that Starbug's siren is described animatopoetically as an agua. Agua. <laughs> which I like a lot. Agua. That's, cool. That's kind of an in joke because yeah. it's not explained and it's like if you don't, if you've not seen the TV series, that would make no sense. <laughs> it only were or unless it's in Gladiators or uh, Cyberzone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who said it first? It was Craig, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was Hattie. Well, yeah. But <laughs> Craig first used it as a catchphrase on a game show in Cyberzone, and John Fashion who stole it Fuck, from him. The show notes are going to be packed <laughs> for this one. <laughs> there is there is a proper citation for that. This is a, an yeah. interview. Our small points have been depleted, so it's time to open up our small passages once more. And I'm presuming uh, that my small passages first chronologically this week. Uh, maybe we should do them in reverse. Oh, no. my small passage <laughs> is the is the acknowledgement. <laughs> well, my small passage is literally the first bit. So <laughs> I'm going to do some abridging as I go, I think. Okay. Excuse me, miss, he tried to say, but it came out mangled, as if he was sucking in Bulgarian words rather than enunciating English ones. The girl behind the souvenir shop counter looked at him curiously and shook her head. No, I'm sorry, she said. I haven't seen anyone of that description. Rimmer screwed up his features so his face resembled a paper bag full of paper bags. What was this silly girl babbling about? He tried again. I'm looking for a short, ugly man covered in grime with unspeakable personal hygiene and a body odour problem that could wilt a giant redwood. He offered a dog-eared photograph of Lister. The girl glanced down at the snapshot and then looked up at him and smiled. Good morning, sir. How can I help you? Oh. Uh, Young ones. Good morning, (laughs) sir. Good morning, sir. (laughs) Good morning, sir. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> Helen Lederer. <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> Rimmer watched her for a while, his frustration mounting. He tried to attract her attention again with a couple of subtle throat clearings, but the girl was watching the news on her illicit below-counter TV and chose to ignore him. <laughs> the news was momentous. Suddenly, inexplicably, and without any warning whatsoever, all the disparate warring nations of Eastern Europe had put down their weapons and formed a giant conglomerate of a country called the Soviet Union. The people of East Germany, as it was now to be called, were joyously erecting a huge and ugly wall with stones called from every corner of the earth, which would keep them in and keep everyone else out. There was a genuine street party feel as they went about their business. 
A secret police service with almost unlimited powers was being formed to enforce the exciting new system of communism, which hitherto had only been half-heartedly attempted in China, and to a lesser degree in Cuba. The world was changing, monumentally changing, and this weirdo tourist with a metallic H branded to his forehead was coughing for her attention with all the subtle aplomb of a chain smoker waking up in the morning unable to locate his lighter. Well, frankly, he could wait. I also have a feeling that the line about a chain smoker waking up in the morning unable to locate his lighter is Rob taking a bit of his personal life <laughs> into the into I absolutely the book. agree. I think that genuinely feels like <laughs> But yeah, just brilliant rimmer and the whole reverse um fall of communism happening yeah. is just a really, really good grand nailery bit uh, of business. Written before the rise of China, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> only recently did I kind of realise that the Berlin Wall was kind of distributed about everywhere like yeah. I thought they knocked it down that was it it's like that wall from that DJ that uh, Danny's girlfriend drove <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that oh my god it really is can we even can we even admit to that or... that's on the record <laughs> basically a car accident happened during a DJ and the resulting wall was knocked down but it was cleared up quite nicely by all of the uh, attendees <laughs> specifically and... Mick loading a load into the back of his 2CV <laughs> like his car didn't need enough fucking problems um, yeah the wall was knocked down by Danny John Jules's girlfriend now wife now wife, uh, now, now wife um, Chula Chula driving his jag into the wall I believe it's now time for Capsi to present his passage. Yes. We join the crew in the middle of a a high-speed chase. Lister slewed the car back to the horizontal position and the wheels kissed the dust on the mountain track. Hang on, Lister shouted. He looked over at Crichton and Rimmer, both of their faces frozen in grins of terror. Sorry, I should have warned you beforewards, he shrugged. Habit... Rimmer prized his nails out of his knees and uttered a vowelless word which, under normal circumstances, the human larynx could not possibly reproduce. He looked out of the window. Hedgerows and bushes spat past dizzyingly. Despite their near-death experience and the fact that the road was getting cruder and rougher, Lister hadn't dropped his speed one iota. Just how much further Rimmer began and then spotted something that took his mind off their velocity. On the seat beside him was a cluster of tiny shards of glass he hadn't noticed before. There was another spattering of them by the handbrake. Where had all this glass come from? And what was that funny hole in the dashboard? You were saying? Rimmer's eyes flicked up to the driver's mirror. There seemed to be a similar sort of funny little hole in the rear window. Rimmer? Rimmer turned to examine the hole, which was surrounded by a network of thin cracks. He turned back to Lister. Where did you get this car? Lister shrugged. Dunno. What do you mean you don't know? This is your car, isn't it? Lister shrugged. Maybe. I've never seen it before. Are you telling me that you're about to steal this vehicle? Not necessarily. Maybe I'm going to buy it. Rimmer's eyebrows pushed his hairline back a good two inches. At the <laughs> highest, most obscure peak of an obscure mountain range, presumably from one of the many discount second-hand car showrooms that flourish there, Lister shifted uncomfortably in the seat. Who knows? Maybe we buy it from a farmer or something. Lister, there's only one kind of people living at most obscure peaks of obscure mountains. Strange people. People who don't like other people. Not polite, besuited, second-hand car salespeople. Hermit-type inbred people with criss-cross front teeth and a penchant for stews well-stocked with human flesh. People who, when other people take something away from them, are not adverse to shooting at those other people with bullets. Crichton twisted towards Lister. Bullets? Lister sighed. Okay, we're going to get shot at. He nodded at the bullet hole in the dash. But he's going to miss. Can everyone please relax? 
And actually, that has brought to mind a small point. Like, is is there a cliche of hillbillies eating like cannibalism and hillbillies? Usually, whenever you you talk about like films like Wrong Turn and things like that, where the idea is that some accident has happened and has removed all of the animals from the resulting area that they're living, so they've got nothing, they've got no meat of animals to eat, so they right. resort to cannibalism and all the rest of it as a as a form of sustenance. So that's 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 usually the kind of that's backwards. The, that's and, where it yeah. comes from. Right. Okay. Fair enough. A quick Google um, yes. provides lots of um, examples in fiction. Yeah, seems to have been a thing. Okay, I like the way it's it's described as an obscure mountain range. It's so obscure it doesn't actually fucking exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if it is the Blue Mountains, um, as we speculate, that's not obscure. <laughs> On the trail of the lonesome pine. <laughs> it's a good reading, by the way. <laughs> it's good. Thank you. And now I believe Danny is going to kill a man. I'm going to kill a man. Oh, Danny. How many times have we told you? I've been told. <laughs> oh man, I can't stop people in chest with axes, man. I've been told. <laughs> the corpse opened its mouth and let out a terrible death rattle. Crichton scrambled to his feet. For God's sake, Rimmer yelled. Turn your smegging light on. Crichton flicked on his chest light. The beam hit the animating corpse. It gurgled as a thick dribble of bubbling blood trickled up its cheek and into its mouth. Dizzy with horror, Crichton was vaguely aware that Rimmer was talking to him. He turned and said, What? <laughs> Your hands, Rimmer was saying. He held his hands in the light. The goo that covered them was blood. Crichton was beginning to lose it. He felt like a tsunami was roaring through his head. The stark beam of his chest light, illuminating his bloody shaking hands, fell on the corpse beyond and registered movement. With a low, awful moan, the corpse began to writhe. Its body started juddering violently and then arched its back stiffly and screamed. It thumped back down and began beating the ground with its fists. It screamed again in pain and fury and grasped the pickaxe handle. It started rocking from side to side, hands desperately clawing the handle of the instrument of its death. Rimmer was screaming, Do something! And Crichton staggered forward, half blind with panic. It's Rimmer's fault that Crichton did this. Uh, he grasped the pickaxe. The corpse was looking up at him with an expression that looked like astonishment. Crichton tugged at the handle. There was a wet, cracking sound in the man's chest, but the pickaxe remained lodged there. Crichton summoned all his strength and pulled again and the corpse was tucked to his feet, arms flailing, screaming and yelling insanely. And still the pickaxe was voiced in his chest, and then Crichton held onto the handle, the last of his sanity gurgling out of his ears as he danced a macabre waltz with the dying man in the eerie glow of his own chest light. Crichton was trying to yank the pickaxe loose, but the mountain man was holding it in his own chest with phenomenal adrenal strength. Then suddenly he let go, and with a gruesome crunching gloop, Crichton jerked the pickaxe free. So yeah... <laughs> Into the gloop. <laughs> Into the gloop. <laughs> Out of the gloop. <laughs> Into the fire. <laughs> yeah, it's quite quite visceral. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very Rob. The crunchy half of Grant Naylor. <laughs> it's not the most visceral sequence we'll encounter in this book by any stretch. Even if they are dehumanised a fair bit, I think um, it's still like deeply unpleasant. Well, speaking of deeply unpleasant, insane. Uh, yelling. Our next book club, <laughs> Dwarfcast, uh, will be coming in the next few weeks and we'll be discussing part two Smoke Me a Kipper, I'll Be Back for Breakfast. What does it mean? I wonder which character from Red Dwarf's history might possibly be turning. I mean, when it could just be back. a generic 
Space Corps Marine or Space Marine Corps. Or an SCM. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? We said we wouldn't use this to bash Blast Human. (laughs) Bashed Human. So, yeah, once you've figured out the subtle clue of what this chapter's about and read it, uh, get your comments in on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv. But our next podcast will be the final Series 12 commentary. Da, da, da. Covering Skipper, unsurprisingly. Plus another edition of Waffle Men. So send your suggestions for topics or questions that you want us to cover on GNT or on Twitter. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay safe, stay at home if you need to, stay vaccinated. Sees the bottom of his reach, the is warning his summer now, it's never been she's a mucker. Me working as a burden, I'm sharp of a minute, and it's all I see at me of a few gazillies, and yes, and as always. I'm Semis Nye, and joining me around the virtual coffee table are Spack Nod. <laughs> oh, it's like my, my childhood is coming rushing back at me. Oh, do you know your surname backwards is Spack? <laughs> yes, thank you, Darren. And that's why D Ream were never a success in this universe. Things Can Only Get Better is one of the worst examples of the laws of entropy, which says that basically everything doesn't get better. So technically speaking, I was in a band that had an incredibly inaccurate message. (laughs) That was massive and great big. The universe is massive and great big. (laughs) I don't want to cast any aspersions on them, but maybe they've just given him duff information and it's them that we should be blaming. (laughs) It's like, uh, just fuck Rob up. They were on um, Doug's side of the divorce, but he didn't realise at the time. I've learnt judo, and I've got someone to give him false information about Niagara Falls. I love my fucking life. I'm Doug Naylor, and I love my fucking life right now. (laughs) It's for you, Si. That's for you. And Craig Walker. And Craig Walker. (laughs) Where the fucking hell were we? Oh, yeah, the mountain. (laughs) They were about to climb down the mountain. And the cops was tugged to his feet, arms flailing, screaming and yelling inanely. Insanely. <laughs> <laughs> it's yelling inanely. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, have you seen that tree? That's very nice. The leaf patterns are interesting. That's just how. Whenever I think of post-it notes being used for storytelling, I think of the Amanda Anucci story about Last of the Samoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the compo thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They were they were working, I guess they were writing Partridge, I think. And the, I think it was, yeah, yeah. series one of Amanda and Partridge. Uh, in a writer's room where the writers for Last of the Summer Wine were all, also been writing a series and they had post-it notes describing kind of everything happening, like, you know... <laughs> Cleggy goes downhill and bath or whatever, and they took one down and replaced it with a post-it note that said "Compo bursts puppy with cock." Compo <laughs> 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 is found in a burnt-out car. No, it was worse than that. It was Compo finds body of child in burnt-out car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>
We would link to uh, that in the show notes. However, that story originates from the Rahelistapa that Amando did with Graham Linehan. Yes. So we're not we're not linking to that out of uh, uh, solidarity. God, I that's that rude. Amando Nucci is a national treasure. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs>